Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Hello, friends. I am so thrilled to be with you today, particularly because I have such a good and fun conversation with Gail Song Bantam about marriage. While I don't typically talk about marriage much in my writings, I love to actually talk about marriage because evangelicals are obsessed with marriage to the point of idolizing it. So for those of us who have any connection to the conservative church, there's so much to deconstruct when it comes to our views of marriage. In fact, that was one of the first things that began to shift in me as my theology began to shift years ago. For one, I stopped seeing marriage as the pinnacle of my existence, the thing that is supposed to make me happy or holy, whatever that means. Marriage for me is what it beautifully is in all its imperfections and challenges and normal everyday realities. In fact, I think that the wonder of marriage is its thereness. It can be beautiful and fulfilling the way my friendships can be beautiful and fulfilling. I don't need it to be everything. And that, I think, is where I found so much freedom and so much joy in it. But that came with lots of shifting, theologically and culturally. You see, Taylor and I met at a conservative seminary with traditional male and female and marriage roles, and we were forced to wrestle with what that meant for us early on. When Taylor decided he no longer wanted to pursue theology or ministry, all the while I was feeling called to pursue it full time. Of course, in the spaces we were in, that was unheard of. Both of us while in seminary were learning about quote unquote women's roles. He was studying through the perspective of history and me through the perspective of the Bible. And we came to the same conclusion that these quote unquote roles were cultural and man-made. And finally, we felt the freedom to live into who we are as people individually and together, supporting one another in our gifts and our passions. We realize that gender roles and complementarianism isn't just harmful to women, but to men who also carry the burden of unreal expectations. Like what if my spouse is going through something really difficult and isn't in a position to quote unquote, lead me spiritually. Practically, it just doesn't work for many families. To this end, Gail asks toward the end of her book, do gender roles always win? And I just loved wrestling with that question. Gail's example of how she is intentional about gender roles in her family is different than my choices and how I fight against them in mine, but we both agree that gender roles do win if we're not intentional about making sure that they don't. For example, one thing that was important for me early on in my marriage was to keep my last name. My father wasn't present at birth, so I took my mom's last name. And it was important for me to honor the women in my life and my culture, my family, my legacy by keeping my name. Of course, these kinds of choices are different for everyone. And what's important to me, like keeping my name or like breastfeeding, as you'll hear in the episode, is not important or perhaps even doable for other families. At the end of the day, resisting oppressive cultural norms imposed on us by Christians or not is going to look unique and nuanced for every person or family, which is why I absolutely love this book. It's a look into how Gail and Brian live out their truths in a committed biracial relationship and how we can learn from their wisdom. 
I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do, friends. For those of you who are married and for those of you who aren't by choice or not by choice, I hope you learn about relationships in general, how best to navigate intimacy and friendships and familial relationships in a way that fosters human flourishing. Because friends, we need that in marriage and beyond. Welcome to the Protagonistas. Okay, so I just loved your book, um, and we'll talk more about it, obviously, but thank you so much for writing it, and um, I would have loved to chat with both you and your husband, but this is a podcast for women, so (laughs) so it's just us, but thank you for doing that. (laughs) Absolutely. So yes, anyway, so today on The Protagonistas, I'll be chatting um, with Gail about her new book, Choosing Us, right? What is the subtitle? It's marriage and mutual flourishing in a world of difference. Yes. So good. Um, and I just adored everything that you had to say. Um, I, mm. I loved, I haven't, and, and again, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I haven't read a marriage book in a while. I feel like most marriage, like evangelical white evangelicals love to write marriage books. And, right. you know, after, so I was just so excited to like, not have, you know, I mean, it had, it's been years. So I was like, Ooh, this is fun to, to th- you know, wrestle and reflect on my own marriage um, through mm. y'all's words. And so I thank you. Um, but before we begin to talk about marriage, I'd love for you to share with us about your spiritual background. Um, yeah. I always start with that so that folks can get some context as to, you know, where you're coming from. Well, that's good. I come from a Pentecostal background, uh, Korean immigrant Pentecostal and Black Pentecostal, Kojic specifically. Uh, And then just over the course of my life, my adulthood, I've worked in multi-ethnic, charismatic Pentecostal churches. uh, And then I went to a United Methodist seminary at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. And now I'm trying to find my way and carve out some space in this evangelical, in this evangelical world. Right. Right. Oh, that's so great. So you've definitely um, had your share of backgrounds and different contexts, Mm -hmm. spiritual contexts and all that kind of stuff, Um, which, you know, plays, I'm sure, a huge role into the church that you're in the community that you're forming, um, which I'm sure is just so wonderful. And so I would love to hear more about that. Um, But first, like I said, um, white evangelicals love to write marriage books. And so (laughs) I would love to hear just about the inception of this book um, and the writing process. I feel like you and your husband, you both seamlessly weave your voices into this book and and it feels so natural and it doesn't feel um because sometimes when you have two different people writing it can feel choppy but this doesn't feel that way mm-hmm. at all so how did you make it work in the book you also mm-hmm. mentioned that you like did it in the pandemic and with a puppy uh-huh. and <laughs> I got a puppy right before I had a baby and it was the craziest decision I ever made and so I'm just wondering how did you make all of it work listen this <laughs> book when we decided to do it first of all uh, I never went into this wanting to write as my first book, a book on marriage, mm-hmm, right? right? And uh, and this is where the kind of the Pentecostal comes in. So I'm glad I that you asked me that. But, you know, I was at the beginning of the year, I always do this fast. And mm-hmm. sometimes I, I hear things. Sometimes I, I don't want to do things that I feel like God is calling us to do. And 2020, legit January, I woke up one day and I was felt like we had to write a book together. Wow. 
Oh, that's amazing. And if you've ever, if you've ever talked to people who've co-written books, it could either go really good. Right. Or it could be destructive. Right. 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 (laughs) Um, So I go to Brian and I'm like, listen, babe, I feel like we're supposed to write a book. What should we write about? Oh, well, maybe we could just write about marriage. I said, are you, are you kidding me right now? (laughs) And so we were like, okay, we're going to write a book on marriage. Um, And I don't know if you know my context, but you know, I'm, I'm leading a church Mm. in this particular space. Our building used to be the former Mars Hills church who also wrote a book on marriage that, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, you can imagine all the things going through my mind and then March hits and it's a pandemic. Right. Kat, we have never argued so much in our marriage as we did during this pandemic and while we were writing this book. Wow. And so there were a couple of times where we looked at each other. What are we doing? Why are we writing a book on marriage? And then, you know, like all good people do, you get a puppy when your kids are just about grown and leave the house. Um, But then they all came back home because of the pandemic. Oh my goodness. Um, So we had five people in this house, living in this house. And then we thought it was a great idea to get a puppy (laughs) that, you know, I never grew up with dogs. Right. Me neither. Yeah. Yeah. And and so wild. Yeah. Just imagine. So it was almost like a, it's like a lab. It's like a lab for marriages. Can you co-write a book in the midst of a global pandemic and still make it through? Right. And thanks be to God, here we are. And you know, <laughs> you in, hinds- in hindsight, I'm grateful. Um, and as far as like the writing and the voicings, I think, you know, when you're with somebody long enough, mm-hmm. somehow like the, the language you use and, you know, he's so brilliant to like, it started rubbing off on me. It's awesome. And, you know, we both went to Duke. And so every seminary, I feel like has its own language. Right. Um, so to speak. And so, I don't know, I just feel like it was, it was pretty smooth in yeah. the writing process. Um, I was actually really nervous because I write more. Oh, how do I say this? Um, more practically for the church. Okay. Right. So when I'm, when my writing right now is really, you know, newsletters for the church updates for the church right preaching that kind of that kind of writing and to write a book I was actually really nervous especially alongside my husband I was like oh my gosh he's a writer he's a theologian this is what he does um so it was it was kind of intimidating initially um but once you get in the flow yeah I'm glad you think that it was smooth yeah, it really was. Yeah. No, it was so great. I, I so enjoyed reading it. And I just want to say, I absolutely love, um, I didn't know that your building is the old Mars Hill building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love that. It's like very subversive and like you're reclaiming that space and you're reclaiming like, I mean, the marriage books that came out of there are, oh gosh, I remember actually like at one point, I think I to like a more like a conference uh like a oh marriage marriage it was like it, oh my gosh so bizarre but anyway I just want to like name that and just say yes that you are undoing and redoing mm-hmm. so much harm that was done um from that space and from just that yeah those views on marriage and so mm. thank you and that's why I was saying like this it, it felt so refreshing to read finally a marriage book um 
that was was about mutual flourishing and not the yeah. flourishing of one person or you know whatever right. so yeah anyway thank you for that right. um okay so you have a quote that and this kind of goes along with traditional views of marriage that many of my listeners I'm sure have you know uh heard or been a part of or whatever been instilled in them but you said um you say in the beginning of the book that marriage is not the pinnacle of what it means to be made in the image of god but one good relationship among many. And mm-hmm. I like circled, highlighted, amen, because I just remember um, all the pressure and expectation that I felt before I got married in that this is like it, right? Like right. this is what we are to strive for, like the, you know, everything. And, you know, thankfully my, my husband and I, after we got married, you know, we, we left the evangelical world. And so we, you know, we, um, did a lot of deconstructing in our views of marriage. And, Mm. you know, as we were deconstructing a lot of our views of marriage, I realized like, you know, like my marriage isn't the most important, you know, thing in the world. It is one really amazing, important thing out of so many other amazing, important things. And I, I wrote a little thing about, you know, about that, that like, marriage is just, it's sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's not, and it's just there. And there, it doesn't have to be, um, yeah, what, what many in the church make it out to be. It's like the church is obsessed with it. And so I love that you kind of just threw that out there. Like this is, it's just one great thing among many, and it's not the Mm -hmm. pinnacle. Um, but it's just, you know, a way that we can be, you know, we, we, the image of God is in us. So I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit more on that. Um, yeah. And, and where, you know, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'd love to. And I don't think we can actually talk about this without naming, right? The problematic ways, like you said, marriage has historically been articulated or even promoted in our society, and especially in the life of the church as a kind of destiny. Right. And when I say destiny, I'm talking like a a kind of fulfillment, prize, Mm -hmm. arrival, or even our purpose in life, right? Especially for women. So even like the ability for women to reproduce is often at the center of this sentiment. And, and, and also this notion in some ways that women can't be trusted to be alone, that somehow Mm. women need men to thrive. And so if you look at like the, uh, like the American fifties society, this notion of nuclear family becomes the basic kind of building block from where everything Right. Gross from, right? You've got the husband, wife, 2.5 kids, white picket fence. And in many ways, having children was what it meant to like do your part in society. Mm-hmm. So within this structure, oftentimes, especially, you know, Brian and I were always surrounded by single folks mm-hmm. throughout our lives, right. even though we were married at 21. Mm-hmm. But when you look at this kind of pinnacle kind of structure, Singleness is always then deemed as not enough or something's wrong with you. Um, So when I think about if if we use this language of marriage as the pinnacle of all relationships, I just imagine a kind of pyramid. Like if if Mm -hmm. for those of you who are listening, I'm actually doing my hands like a a triangle, like a pyramid of relationships. So if we're saying marriage is at the top, right? the pinnacle of the pyramid, but then somehow the pyramid gets flipped because, you know, life happens. Right. That's too much weight, right? right. Then the, the pinnacle is at the bottom. The right. point is at the bottom and that's too much weight for a marriage to bear alone. Right. So our identities, when we say this, we're talking about our identities as never one singular 
relationship. We're never identified by one type of relationship, right? Because yeah. we have families, biological and chosen, friendships, single folk, even right. wider senses of relationships like community or churches or organizations. So we always believe, Brian and I always say that when there's a multiplicity of relationships, mm-hmm. it makes marriage a more freeing space. Yeah, that's and so, so good. Even for married folks, you better have a robust uh, friendship life, a communal right. life, right? Um, so whatever that looks like for folks, um, yeah. so critical. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and thank you for naming that right early on. Um, because I think that, yeah, like you said, it's it's too much weight and it's too much pressure and it's too much expectation on, right. you know, that nobody can can sustain, nobody can, you know. And I always say, you know, talking about marriage and deconstructing views of marriage, I, I think so much about, you know, when you have a non-egalitarian view of marriage. Again, like that's not just harmful for women, but that's harmful for men. Men can't absolutely that's too much weight. That's too much pressure. That's too much for a man to lead and, and you know all of these things. And so, so yeah, there needs to be equilibrium um, in you know in that sense. And talking about this, so I was going to ask you this later, but I okay. think this this kind of fits with this. Um, you taught you have a chapter on you know women and gender roles and these kinds of things, and you talk about glass bulbs versus rubber yes. balls. And within that, so I want to, I want you to talk a little bit about that, but within that, I absolutely love your critique of the phrase juggling or like balancing. (laughs) And you, you know, you kind of talk about how you don't like that, that how people are like, yeah, I'm just juggling or I'm balancing. And I love that because I, I mean, I use that all the time. Like I'm just juggling. And so when I read that, I was like, yes, thank you. You're giving me, you know, like language is so important and you're giving me other words to use. And, and you say, um, creation is never a juggling act. Life is about cycles. So can you talk to us about the glass bulbs, the rubber balls, and then also this idea of not using juggling, but using cycles? Yeah, you know, being in ministry. Okay, so having been married young, having kids at 23, being in ministry from the time I was 21, and being around lots and lots of women in all different stages of life, and even including myself, being very... um, career driven. Um, there's a lot that, you know, however, 15, 15, 20 years ago, I would have said I was juggling. Mm -hmm. And anytime I used that sentiment, I was like, this, this is, this can't be faithful because Mm -hmm. then it's this stress and anxiousness of not letting anything fall or Mm -hmm. drop and God forbid something drops. Right. Right. And but I realized over the course of many different seasons of life um, that there are things that you can let drop Mm -hmm. your rubber balls that, you know, are not as fragile in that particular season of your life that will bounce back. Mm -hmm. But then there are there are certain things in that particular moment of your life that are like glass bulbs that you have to care for that you have to attend to, you have to be very intentional about. And in that chapter, I talk a lot about um, sometimes it's the new things in life or the transitions or the shifting things that we're experiencing in life, whether it's new relationships, new jobs, new city, Mm. new friendships, or even um, a loss of something, right? That's a new space that we're occupying. Those often tend to be our glass bulbs that we want to be very attentive to 
both individually and as a couple, right? right? To know that, hey, if this drops, it can be catastrophic. Mm, yeah. But because we're attending to this in this particular moment, what in our life can we be hold a little loosely? Mm, right. Knowing that if it drops, we're not going to be devastated. It'll bounce mm. back. It'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in that, like when we're using analogies of, you know, creation and created order and nature, nothing is juggling. Creation does right. not juggle itself, but there's that of cycles or seasons. I like to use either one of those interchangeably. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the same with our lives. Right. Right. Yes. That is so helpful. Like I mentioned, you know, that sort of language is helps just reframe just how we mm-hmm. even think of it. And it's true. I mean, you know, there is seasons and cycles and, you know, I just had a baby. And so I'm like learning how to, you know, do this new huge thing, you know? Um, and right now it does feel like I'm juggling, but like you said, it's not that I'm juggling. It's that this is new and this is a season and this is just, you know, it's, I'm going to eventually move into another, a new space and, you know, it'll, it'll look different or feel different. Um, so yeah. So thank you. Mm. So you also, use this phrase when when it comes to flourishing and since we've been talking about you know how relationships and how these things work um you talk about flourishing as a give and take and as a pushing and a pulling and I also really loved that I thought that that was also a good Mm -hmm. way um to to think of it even thinking of this this idea of cycles or even seasons um, of giving taking pulling pushing uh, a reciprocal thing um mm-hmm. and i really like that because you frame that as like flourishing is not just individual right that's right um and when we think when we're doing justice work and we know that it's collective we know that you know as i heal you know we're healing together and we're you know we're being liberated together um but i love the idea of flourishing as a pushing and a pulling. Can you talk to Mm. us a little bit more about that, um, particularly when it comes to marriage? Yeah, I often like to think about it like like a dance, Mm. right? When you think about relationships like a merengue or salsa, Mm. you you can do it alone. right? And really good dancers can make it look really good doing it alone, but it's more beautiful and powerful. Uh, when others are involved and with when both parties are fly and in step, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's very much like kind of this Trinitarian notion of God, right? This perichoretic existence, uh, three and one, they are not one without the other. Right. Um, and when I think about the Godhead and who God is, it is like a dance. It is like this kind of giving and taking, um, receiving, and offering, mm-hmm. pushing and pulling. And so when we think about marriage and, and really any kind of relationship right. as, as fluid, mm-hmm. as organic, um, there are, again, seasons and cycles when one person is probably more in need of attention, of of mm-hmm. of receiving than the other and then over time it's the other person right and just being really attentive right to one another um and this is where in a lot of relationships where we're um we're mindful that we sometimes have to come out of ourselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um you know chapter 2 is all about learning the other person reading the other person um, what what does that other person need in order to flourish? And where do I need to pull back and vice versa? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah. that's kind of what we mean when we're when we're talking about flourishing as a kind of pushing and pulling. It's like a dance. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me, I think a lot. So I, I wrote this in my, my book, Abuelita Faith of how, um, when we like, when we think about the, or the quote unquote, like the other, right. Um, and, mm-hmm. or in Christian spaces, particularly in traditional Christian spaces, um, you know, we think as us only as the ones serving or the ones giving, right. And not as the right. ones receiving, we think right. you know, when, when it comes to marginalized people, right. Let's invite them to our table instead of, and I call this like a sort of decolonized notion of, of discipleship or hospitality where no, let's go to their table and, you know, because people have their own tables, right? So let's right, sit right, at right. someone else's table and let's receive, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, and and I, actually you wrote, you said something about this. Um, you said the beauty in learning the other is that it transforms us. Our, mm-hmm. And our transformation is not just for our sake. It also enables the greater good of the whole. And I love mm-hmm. how you frame that as that when I learn about the other, whether it's my spouse or whether it's, you know, the quote unquote other in my midst, it's not just for their sake, right? It's not just where I, um, you know, it's not a, a, a me giving, but it's also a receiving, like I'm being transformed and I'm yeah. being uh, renewed in that relationship. Um, I'm learning, right. There's mutuality yeah. and there's reciprocity. And I see that so much in the life of Jesus, like Jesus sat with folks and learned from folks and received mm-hmm. from folks and, you know, was changed mm-hmm. by folks. I, I right. think so. That's so yeah, right. if you want to speak a little bit to that as well, the idea of that, that learning about the other transforms us for the whole. Absolutely. And I think when, when we're attentive to the other, when there's a sense of reciprocity, the transformation in us, right, is never that we might be well, mm. just in and of itself, in and right. of ourselves, right? But that transformation hopefully will open our eyes and our hearts and our bodies and our minds to be more empathetic, mm. to know what it means to advocate. Hey everyone, it's Kat. As a space for highlighting the stories of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, this podcast has been important for so many listeners. And I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for the support of every single one of you. But beyond listening, you can help the show in other ways too. The first is obviously by heading over to your podcast app of choice and writing us a review. It helps the show greatly and doesn't cost you a dime to do it. That said, if you do have the funds to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas to learn more how your dollars can go to help fuel the growth of this podcast. For just a cup of coffee per month, you can keep this important work going. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas. I talked a little bit about, um, you know, Brian with his hearing loss. Right, right. Right. And just being ignorant. at the beginning of our relationship Mm -hmm. and like not understanding, not being empathetic. But once I began to really like take on his world Mm -hmm. and be transformed by it and his anxiousness and public as a result of it, you know, you grow a sense of a, I'm transformed. I'm like, Oh, you know, um, I need to, I need to, do what I can to make sure he's able to thrive in public spaces. Um, That's advocacy. That's empathy. Mm. And so in the midst of my own transformation, empathy is not just something I hoard for myself. Mm. Right. But it's offered. 
That's so good. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your, so you, you mentioned your relationship with your mother and your relationship with your father mm-hmm. and obviously how that formed you. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I was so interested in hearing about how your mom, uh, when you were 11 years old, she just like mm-hmm. packed her things and went to seminary. And I thought that mm-hmm. that was incredible. Um, just given your cultural context and some of the stuff that you mentioned, like the, what are, you know, what's expected of Korean women or things like that. And so can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, and also how did that shape, you know, your ministry and your calling? And you talked about how you had a completely different plan and you ended up pastoring just like your mother or just as your mother wanted to do. And so you can talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think there's, um, there's a reality in the moment and then there's a hindsight. Mm-hmm. perspective right, right. right in the moment it was actually very hard you know yeah. as a as a girl 11 years old um and my parents relationship was struggling they were both in ministry my mm-hmm. mom much more kind of pursuant of it right but you know in korean culture you know you're met by barriers and boundaries mm-hmm. um and i just witnessed her fighting her way through a lot mm-hmm. in the korean church with korean yeah. men trying to carve out a space for herself. And I think after a little while, um, she knew she was called. Mm. And I think, I, I swear, I think she's an eight on the Enneagram or she was an <laughs> eight on the Enneagram. She was just going to carve her own way, you know? So right. she's like, I bet I'm going to go to seminary. Right. And she was wow. 40 years old, English as a second language. Right. And I think part it was part call, part convenience. Like mm. I'm leaving dad. Yeah. Right? And she just picked up her things, went to Tulsa, Oklahoma to go to seminary. And for six months, it was just me and my brother and my dad Mm. in Chicago. And, you know, in that season of my life, I was like, nah, I can't do this. And so I asked my mom, I was like, can I come with, come live with you? And so uh, I moved down to Tulsa when I turned 12 and lived with her and just, just watched her struggle. Mm -hmm. Uh, helped her with her reading. And, wow. you know, here I am 12, 13, 14 years old, reading theological textbooks wow. and like trying my best to help her with papers <laughs> and English and editing and, oh you know, things that, right? that, I mean, things that no kid should actually have to do, but right. there, it did something in me, her, her sense of call and assuredness in her call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, only to, to find that after she graduated, um, she tried to find a place that would ordain her that would even rent a place out for her in the afternoon and nobody would do it until this Lutheran church. Um, and when, when I was a sophomore or right before I was a sophomore in college, I went home for summer break, diagnosed with cancer, died two months later. Um, and you know, I always say that there's something really uh, profound about death mm. that shifts our perspective yeah. on what matters. I think even when you're young. And so right. while I had all these plans, right, mm. I wanted to be a conductor. I was in the music world. I really sensed that God was calling me to ministry. And people had told me when I was young. But I just ignored it. It's like, no, why would I want that life? I'm like looking at my mom. I'm like, why would I want that life? Mm. Who would who would sign up for that? I'm I'm going to be a musician or I'm going to be yeah. a conductor. I'm good, you know. <laughs> and then my mom dies, and my world is rocked. 
Mm. Um, I actually saw a friend's status the other day who just lost her mom and she described it so beautifully. It's, it's as if her world became smaller Mm. and it's so true. Like the person who brought you into this world for many folks, right? Not all, but the only person, you know, that has been there from the moment you took your first breath is gone. And so it just shifts your whole perspective on what matters. Tomorrow's never promised. Yeah. So I better obey God. Mm. Right. And so from the time, from that moment on, I was like, okay, God, I'll do it. And since I graduated undergrad, went right into ministry, didn't know what I was doing. Mm. (laughs) Like crazy stories. Um, That that may be my next book. I just, I just want to write crazy (laughs) stories about my life as a 21 year old through 30 year old people thinking I was still a teenager, you know? Um, trying to make it in this world, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, in hindsight now, I, I think her life and her body, her presence, her fight gave me a a greater imagination for what is possible for me. Um, where I know that that's not the story for a lot of women and especially Korean American women, right? right? We don't, we've never seen it. So we don't even have an imagination for it. Right. Right. But that's not my story. So I I owe a lot to my mom for, you know, living in such a way, living in conviction that Mm. just is bearing fruit in my life. Wow. That's incredible. That really is an incredible story. And so was it right after her death that you changed courses? I mean, were you like on the way to doing uh, music, you know, stuff? And wow. Yeah. And then I met Brian. So Brian's actually critical in the story because I kind of walked away from God after that because I was so mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and my just my faith um, was rocked for a little while. Right. But Brian, I met Brian um, because his dad had died just right before mm-hmm. and a mutual friend just connected us. Right. And um, he his faith was so solid and he was kind of newer to faith. So, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of <laughs> zeal. Right. Yeah. Um, that both shamed me and uh, made me feel guilty. So I was like, I better get my life right with God. Um, But yeah, I mean, and meeting somebody for whom just really valued um, my gifts and my call. And yeah, so I I even almost dropped out of school because I was like, oh, I'm called to ministry. Why am I at this music conservatory in New York? But we decided, let's just go ahead and finish, get the degree and then pursue ministry. So here I am. Yeah. 24 amazing. years later. Wow. <laughs> and leading an entire church. <laughs> it's wild. It's Which I never wanted to do, right? I never wanted to be a lead pastor. <laughs> wow. I know. You know, but how God works. So talking about your music, I was interested in this. You talked about how growing up, you didn't ever know a life apart from learning, honing, crafting, and perfecting something with the intensity they say being a professional musician or athlete cultivates. And Mm. I was just curious about how um, that came out in your marriage, in your personal life, in your ministry. And how did you navigate that as you got older? How has it been helpful for you? And in what ways did you have to, um, yeah, work through it? You know, when I saw this question, I was like, oh man, that's a really good question. I have nobody's asked me that 
before. Oh, yay. <laughs> um, and I've never actually thought about it. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, and I'm just going to be just raw here um, because I've never actually thought about it. Um, I'm wondering if I've actually just kind of separated mm-hmm. my relational life from like work life. Okay. Um, I'm sure if you ask my husband, he would probably be able to give you a list of the ways that I (laughs) try to perfect this marriage. Um, but but I don't know, like, I feel like we had, we didn't actually have good models of healthy relationships growing up. Um, so I don't actually, I, early on, I didn't actually know what I was working toward. Mm. Right. Um, and I, and I think maybe, so this is where I'm thinking maybe my drive in that sense is less about perfecting or honing um, my, my marriage or even as a parent, but it was more a sense of control, mm-hmm. especially since my life losing parents, right. my dad disowning me when I was 20, right. It's destabilizing. So I think it, in my marriage that was new, didn't have any models and parenting, not having my parents around, maybe it was more of a sense of control. I do know that like, there are times when I just, you know, just wanted to keep it together right. um, with this sense of trying to figure out who I was and wanted to be in the world. I do know that, you know, having our kids young, my first at 23, Wow. I will say there are times when like I tried to perfect my kids and mm-hmm. I was like, these kids are going to be perfect, right? <laughs> these, <laughs> you know, and you know, my house is going to be perfect. And then you have your first kid and there's just stuff everywhere. And you're like, okay, okay whatever. That's not going to work. <laughs> Let me perfect my kid. And yeah. then you realize you hit middle school and you're like, okay, whatever. That's not going to work. <laughs> um, and then middle school kind of lasts between three kids, like nine years, like almost a right. decade. Yeah. Um, so I I don't know like I I learned that um, relationships um, have to be fostered. Mm. Um, I do still I'm I'm sure my husband would say I do still try to control him, mm. um, but I've learned ways to do it where you know he doesn't feel bad about it. You know, <laughs> you you do it in question form. You know, were you going to take out the garbage? Because <laughs> yes. that gives him an out. We always talk about that. It gives him an out, as opposed to you were supposed to take out the right. garbage. Just like, right. were you going to take out the garbage? And then that gives him like, <laughs> yes, I was. Right. I was going to do it in an hour. I did the I mean? same thing to my husband when he leaves his clothes on the bathroom sink. Did, did you leave that on purpose, or were you going to go back and are, are you putting that on? <laughs> you know, right, 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 right. It always works better in question, but now my husband's onto that. He's like, can you not? Um, yeah. <laughs> so funny. I know. I think in, in kind of all seriousness, I think the, yeah. the honing and perfecting my musical background actually comes out more in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ask my colleagues and, and our staff here, they'll probably be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's where it's at. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Because it's it's more about producing something, cultivating right. something um, that you'll kind of see that tendency more mm-hmm. in me. And hopefully, I, I mean, I, I hope I'm getting better at it and more healthy yeah. at it, um, especially in the church context, right? Because the work you do is with other people. Right. Yeah. So, along those yeah. lines, um, yeah. I, there was a quote that you said that 
stood out. Uh, you said marriage is not a sourdough recipe that can be perfected mm. with just enough time. And I love that because you'd think, right. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the way that people talk about marriage is that with time, yeah, you, it, you, you perfect it. Right. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. would you, if, if it's not that way, um, what, how would you, how else would you describe it? Okay. So this is what I'm learning. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a baker. But during the pandemic, I've learned a lot about bread yeah. making. A because like I feel like everybody at this church and yes. in Seattle was trying to make sourdough bread. My, my everybody son, everywhere. My, oh, is it really? My youngest oh, yeah. son was also trying to make sourdough bread. So I would find these like jars of nasty smelling things in random cabinets. Um and <laughs> I realized sourdough. Okay. I was like, what's the difference between that and other bread? Cause he was making other bread too. And mm-hmm. um, when we say sourdough recipe can't be perfected with just time because sourdough is not, that's not how it works. Mm. Um, right. Sourdough requires this thing called a starter. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's a lot of variables with starters. Like I learned that you got to nurture. It's like a living organism. People were passing around starters, like <laughs> they would make it. And then right. somehow they would say that the, they divided it and gave it to somebody. I was like, what are y'all talking about? <laughs> but what I learned was sourdough starter has to be nurtured. Mm-hmm. Like you really have, there's a lot of variables like humidity or the amount of right. light, et cetera. Right. So it's not just a matter of making dough, waiting for it to rise and then baking it. Like, right. So this kind of timed reality, but, um, sourdough, I feel like it's time plus other things. Mm, That's good. Right. So there's no such thing as a sourdough recipe or a marriage that can be perfected with just time. You got to work at it. You got to nurture it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work that goes into it before you actually, um, like see, see the, the result, the fruit of it so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make That's sense? So good. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually used to um, make kombucha. And so it's the same, I guess it's oh. the same idea that you have this living thing, right. And you, right. you can divide it up, but you, like you said, you have to nurture it. You have to do cause it'll die. And then you, right. you, you're done, you know? Um, yeah. So that's good. That's good. I, I love that analogy. Okay. Um, I want to talk about gender roles. I know we touched a little mm-hmm. bit on them before, um, but you asked this question and you wrestle with it. And I thought it was really good um, because I have felt like, so my husband and I, and I was actually talking with a mom group recently. And I said, you know, one of the most uh, surprising things about for me in, in a season of becoming a mom was mm-hmm. my, you know, my spouse and I, we are 100% 50-50 on everything we do, right? We're, we're super mm-hmm. egalitarian, like mm-hmm. everything is perfectly 50-50. And I was not expecting to become a mom and it not be that way. And as much as he does, you know, I mean, of course, that even in how we take care of our child and everything, but, you know, even in, in just the comfort of my child and the feet, you know, I'm breastfeeding. And even that alone is 75% of the time and energy. And it took me a while to be okay with the fact that I'm the primary, you know, and of course I'm sure that changes as my child gets older and, you know, things like that, but it was a struggle for me. And so when you ask this question, do gender roles always win? Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, Whoa, that is, um, 
such an interesting question. And, and I'm sure the answer is not a clear yes. Obviously, you're not a clear no. There's a, there's a wrestling with it. Um, but yeah, it just struck me, struck me because mm-hmm. in this season, I have felt like, man, I I wanted it to be, you know, I didn't want to be the primary caregiver because we're going to be 100% 50 50. Yeah. And that's just, and I just have to, and that's fine. Right. And I, so I'm working right. through that. Right. Um, but can right. you talk to me about um, the, sort of the, just this question and you're wrestling with it? Do gender roles always win? Yeah. And <laughs> um, I will say it's like a, it, it's like gravity. The pull is so strong and um you know being married to somebody who i feel like is so self-aware very um very aware of his own body Mm. the maleness of his body and the ease in which this world has been literally created for him And bodies like his, you know, Um, even with that, I will say that to this day, we still have to have conversations because the pull is just so strong that we have to be intentional. Mm -hmm. We have to always call it out. And as women, like we can't be afraid to call it out. And to call it out doesn't mean that you're not equal, that you're not, that your, your spouse or your partner is failing, mm. right? It, it's just this, like, we always say that it's like the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. It just is. Right. And right. so I think uh, for me, I've always had to be very mindful. So um, with all of our kids, with the first one, I really wanted to breastfeed. Mm. Um, and you know, and you read this that I I didn't even imagine having kids. Mm. So here mm. I am. <laughs> I, I didn't even imagine being married until I was in my 30s, right? I was very mm. career driven, very independent. Um, so here I am, 23 with my first child. Like, can you just imagine right there alone? Right. Yeah. And I'm the one that had like the certainty of call and what I right. wanted to do in life. And Brian was just like, oh, maybe I want to do this. Maybe I want to mm-hmm. do that. Right. And <laughs> you're right. My body can, my body is the one that can create this baby. Right. Or as we, we say nowadays, make people. Mm-hmm. Right. I made my person. I made a person. And so there's realities to that. And I wanted to breastfeed. But this child came out so large. And there was all kinds of medical issues that we were dealing with that I wasn't able to, that Brian had to take care of our firstborn Mm -hmm. immediately. Um, So we opted for the bottle formula. Mm -hmm. Um, I was literally bedridden um, for two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that reality actually helped us. Now, I'm not saying that one way is better than the other, but I think what that did to me was, oh, if you can afford it, which we were scraping coupons for formula, but if you can afford it, something about anybody being able to feed your child at any given time, that your child is not going to die because they had formula. Right. 
right? That there's just these realities that I was like, oh, this is going to work. Oh, you can mm-hmm. get up at night. You can feed this child. Yeah. Right. And so it did something in me that kind of shifted. Um, so then when we had our second child, our third child, I was like, oh, oh, we're going to do formula. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to do formula. Because at that time I was working like, yeah. You know, we had other kids and it was, Mm. I would say for me, for our family, it worked, Mm -hmm. but I will say I was very conscientious of what we were doing Mm. and why we were doing it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that's not everybody's, you know, story or ability to do so. Um, But I think in that sense, I share that because. I feel like at every turn, even with the kind of husband I have and partner I have, I'm very aware when we're making decisions, if I feel like majority of our decisions tend to lean toward his preferences, mm-hmm. I'll stop us and I'll call it out. I'll mm-hmm. say, hey, do you, do you realize we've been actually doing what you've been wanting to do? or your preferences, the last four out of the five times. And he's like, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we just have to constantly be mindful. Right. And I think that's where like, do gender roles win? It doesn't have to. Mm. Yeah. But if we're not careful, it can. It will. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I think it, it certainly takes, um, a constant being intentional um, because if mm-hmm. not, yeah, like what, you know, it's one of those things that whatever's natural in culture and society and whatever, you know, folks are pushing you toward will be what you just fall into and do um, if you're not, you know, really fighting against it. And that goes in, in so many aspects and so many things. Um, but yeah, right. I thought that was good that you wrestled with that question um, because it's easy for it to, it, it is easy for gender roles to win if we don't actively make sure they don't. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So one last question. Um, you talk about how, or, or I'll just read another quote because I love doing okay. that and just having you expand on them, but you say peace. So you're talking about peace and, and sort of your wrestling with peace um, as you um, were, as you were growing up Pentecostal and just, you know, in, in ministry And you talk about how peace is the complicated marriage between what is just and what is possible or what could be. I thought that was Mm -hmm. such a cool line. If you can elaborate a little bit more on that and your understanding of peace. Yeah. um, You know, when I was younger, it wasn't always celebrated. Right. This this almost a violence in peace. Mm or this notion of in order to get to peace, sometimes it, it, it requires tension and rubbing. Um, and I shared some stories in there, but I think for me, peace is always um, achieved when there's a sense of shalom. Mm-hmm. When, when there's injustice, when there's um, wrong in your community, in your sphere, in your world, in your life, Um, you'll never experience peace unless there's a kind of working out of 
uh, of a kind of the way it ought to be mm. or a, a sense of uh, shalom. Um, and that's simply what I mean sometimes. And I, I use very practical examples of, you know, sometimes um, you can't be at peace with something or s- someone unless, you know, I, I talk about a, um, I talk about an incident where um, I felt like people were being wronged mm. in my circle. And, you know, even though I would, I knew I was going to get in trouble for the way I handled it. Mm. Um, I felt a deep sense of peace that this particular moment, this particular person um, had to know where I stood, where we stood about what was just and what was right, what was loving. Um, and I didn't feel bad about it. Mm. Right. And it's, I think as we get older though, we mature and what that looks like, it's not always, it's not always um, physical fights on the playground right. um, as I name, but um, I think that's for me, I'm always disrupted. Mm. There's always a disruption. Uh, until there's activity, until there's work, and, uh, until I literally have to sometimes put my body on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, so even now, as a as an example for our church, um, having become now fully affirming of our LGBTQ plus siblings, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I have to put my body on the line. I have to put my credentials on the line. Mm-hmm. I have to put my reputation, my friendships on the line. Um, and even though over the last two years, I've lost many friendships, mm. I've lost um, many colleagues, um, and it's been really painful, mm. but I feel at peace. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's a deep and profound peace in my spirit, in my soul, because I believe that we are moving in the direction of uh, making room and abundance and enoughness mm. in the in in God's economy. Yeah, right. There's enough for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's so good. Amen. Thank you so much, Gail, for yeah. chatting with me and for writing this book. Um, it is just so wonderful, and I think so refreshing and so healing um, mm-hmm. for I'm sure so many people, and and just even for me. And so. Yeah, if you want to let folks know um, where they can buy it or where they can follow you or any of that information. Absolutely. Um, you can follow us on thebantamspace.com um, and you can buy, pre-order the book now. The book launches March 1, uh, but you can pre-order anywhere books are sold and it's called Choosing Us, Marriage and Mutual Flourishing in a World of Difference. And we're super excited about it. Yay! I'm so excited about it too. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.